This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors, as well as the occasional guest, to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you. It's never a good time to experience a medical problem, and we've all faced a problem at the most inconvenient time, whether it's just before a trip or between long-awaited doctor appointments, such as to see a Parkinson's specialist. So planning ahead for such a situation is critical, knowing whom to call on the Parkinson's care team, as well as having a fallback plan in the local community. Heather Russell, nurse coordinator of the Parkinson's Foundation Center of Excellence at the London Health Sciences Center in London, Ontario, is that first point of contact for her patients when they have a Parkinson's-related problem between clinic visits. Since she is in Canada, some of her advice and protocols differ a bit from the medical systems in the U.S. and possibly other countries, but in general, it can help you formulate a plan wherever you are for when you have a problem between appointments. First of all, how common is that? It can be quite common, even if they have just left an appointment and medications have been changed or adjusted and they're finding that they're still having issues or side effects. They want to reach out and have someone to be able to contact and get some information, some guidance. So I really find that we don't want the patient feeling hopeless and like there's no one to reach out to. Who should they turn to, I guess, depending on the kind of problem they're having? So at our center, generally speaking, the phone calls, the majority come to myself because they're well aware that they are to reach out to me as the nurse, but they do call the main office as well. And then our administrative assistant would take down the information and then give that to us accordingly to be able to look at their file and then call them back. What do you do with the information? What do you tell them whom to see or what to do? So again, it depends on the situation. If it's just a medication side effect or they're needing an adjustment to the medication, I can guide them with that myself. Or I'll get the fellows to... uh, review their chart and give them a call and advise them what to do. If it's a situation where they may cognitively be showing some quick decline or having hallucinations, those sort of things, we do advise that they go to a family doctor to get a urinalysis done, those sort of things to rule infection out before we all of a sudden just go, okay, we're going to treat you with medication for those situations. But we always guide them in one direction or the other. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least, Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. 
Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. What about a neurologist? Where do they fit in? Or should it be the family doctor at that point? Again, it may vary just because of being in Canada, but we cover a very broad area that people live hours and hours away. And so many of their services are advised to reach out to family doctor rather than come all the way to us just to have, like I said, a a simple urine test or something like that. But if I feel like it's detrimental, they're having more falls or cognitively we're not getting on top of it, then I will just talk to her administrative assistant and then she'll get them in sooner than their six month appointment and we would have them come in. So it sounds like the family doctor is there to rule out other causes mainly or to deal with the medication or hallucinations and things like that? So we prefer actually with our Parkinson's patients that their medications are dealt with by us. We don't want a lot of hands dabbling in that. So we don't want necessarily the family doctor handling the Parkinson's aspect of things. Because in those situations, we've had quite a few issues where they're not treated properly with their medications from a family doctor. Do you have urgent care centers and how would they fit in? I know in the States, a lot of people don't have family doctors. We do have walk-in clinics and urgent care as well for those simple things, like if you're needing a urinalysis or some routine blood work, they could go have them there. But otherwise, like I said, they would reach out to us and we would need to get them in sooner to see us and, and get our hands and our eyes on them. How available are people's records? Are they sort of universally available to the medical community? Here it's so fragmented. We do have a relatively good system set up. It's not always been this way, but we can access especially imaging and some notes and those sort of things across the board, like a family physician and that, or they could give us a call and request that we give them the last note. Those sort of things are available for information purposes. So where do pharmacists fit in if they do? So we do get phone calls or faxes from pharmacists, especially if they're concerned with interactions with other drugs and medications, and especially if it's going to affect their QT waves cardiac-wise. That's obviously something that they're concerned about. So we do ask that they take care of those issues for us, and we'll have the patient come and decide whether we need to continue that medication and start it, or if there is definitely going to be an interaction. Do support groups ever fit in in these situations? You know, we do have organizations, and again, ours are different than in the U.S., but they can reach out to and ask questions about, you know, certain medication interactions and things like that, but they're not experts generally on those things. So as much as they're there for support and more programs, I would say probably for any medication issues and things, it's not the place to start. When do you see these kinds of problems cropping up? Someone who was recently diagnosed or they're in mid to later stages of disease or is it all over the lot? I would say the majority are probably more in the advanced stages. They've exhausted a lot of the typical just levodopa dosage and they need more intervention or they're having more of the fluctuations, the dyskinesia, the wearing off effect, and they need more guidance. But we certainly do see some of the newer ones. It's so overwhelming to get that news at first that I have Parkinson's. And that's something that I think we still need to work on is getting them information they need and who to reach out to and resources for them. Do you tell your patients when they 
first start coming to you that you're the central resource and it should begin with you? I generally do, just because I have access to that and I'm the easiest one to get on the telephone and can follow up on those things more so than the actual our movement disorder clinic specialist. It's easier to get a hold of myself. How big is your catchment area, meaning how far and wide are your patients spread out? So we do cover most of southwestern Ontario from Toronto west to us, and then we go all the way east to Windsor area, and we go as far north as Thunder Bay, which is a good 18-hour drive that patients generally fly in. So we do cover quite a vast area. Thunder Bay is at the top of Lake Superior? Yes, you're correct. (laughs) I've gone across there. Yeah, It is a long drive. Do you use telemedicine? We don't actually use telemedicine, and even during the COVID times, we didn't use telemedicine. My movement disorder specialist just feels that it's very difficult to assess Parkinson's patients actually without seeing them physically, to even do UPDRS, assess tone. How can you instruct anyone to do that over a video? So the majority of ours were telephone, and we always maintained somewhat of a clinic. We definitely got smaller with lack of visitors being able to come, but we always had a clinic, and now we're getting back up to pretty close to normal capacity. I think Ray Dorsey ran a study on telemedicine, and it was working out pretty well. I know a lot of centers are loving it and finding that it's working well. We just have never implemented it in our area. What kind of feedback do you get from patients on these systems you've set up when they're in need? They do find that they like the access to myself. I've had some that suggest that I need to be on call on the weekends, which is just not possible to do. There's a lot of Other underlying issues we find too, the DBS patients, for instance, if they went into an emergency just in their local area, no one's going to know what to do with it. No one's going to know how to maintain it. Even if they came into our hospital and a certain resident's on, they may not even know how to do things. Same with the LCIG, the PEG tube, it's different. It's not like a general GI would know how to do that. So it's very important to stress to them. And I tell most of mine, don't go to your local emergency department in those cases just do this, 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 and then get a hold of me on Monday and we'll get things figured out. Is there ever a fallback plan for DBS patients that they can just turn it off and go back to levodopa? DBS, I don't do that as much. If they're having too much dyskinesia and things like that, then certainly they're instructed to decrease their levodopa. The LCIG, for sure, we tell them that they can shut the pump off and take oral in the interim, or if it's blocked and they're having issues and can't run the pump, same thing. They can just go back to oral medication in the interim until we can get things sorted out. This is the gastrointestinal gel. Anything interesting to add or anything we've missed? No, I think it's just important to stress to patients that not to feel stuck, not to feel that, oh, I have to wait till my next appointment to call my doctor and get a hold of them. I think it's very valid that they need to be taken care of and that they know that someone's there to be able to guide them and help them. Is it helpful to have established a relationship with a patient? They know somebody at the clinic and you know them, you know how they react, you know their medical situation, all these sorts of things. That is very helpful, of course, and if you have the rapport with them and they know. And I think that's one thing that I love. Like, they'll say, thank you so much. I know you're there for me. They sometimes just need to know there's a voice and there's someone on the other end of the phone. They just need to know that in case they're having an issue, that someone's there to help them out. 
Excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.